You are listening to What It's Like with Luce, a podcast highlighting ordinary people doing extraordinary things. I'm your host, Lucy Norris, and on today's episode, I'm chatting with the founder of Reebok, the British footwear and clothing company. Growing up during World War II in Bolton, this week's guest was no stranger to the world of athletics. Hailing from the family behind J.W. Foster and Sons, the company that pioneered the running track spike, shoes were in his DNA. Returning home from two years of national service to a failing company, he decided to leave the family business behind and with his brother, set up Mercury Sports Footwear, which would eventually evolve into the number one sportswear brand in the world, Reebok. Beginning the journey with a pair of cycling shoes, the brothers slowly took over the market, breaking America and winning the hearts of Hollywood. To share his incredible journey, here's what it's like to be Joe Foster. Welcome, Joe. Thank you so much for coming on and chatting with me today. I really appreciate it. Um, how I like to get everything started is just to let people know a bit more about your background and where you're coming from. Um, so I like to ask if you remember when you were growing up in Bolton, ever feeling um, an early entrepreneurial spark or having that inclination as a child? Um, I don't know. It's hard to explain whether when you're a child, you, you know what entrepreneur, being an entrepreneur is. Um, I think I was, I don't say difficult, awkward, but I did probably ask more questions than, uh, than I should have, or, or at least more questions than my parents probably thought I should have, and um, probably a little precocious. And, and I think maybe that inquisitiveness, that desire to find something different, Maybe that's where the entrepreneurism comes from because you, you keep that all your life. It's, uh, you know, right now, what, what am I doing right now? Writing a book. And what do we want now? We want the book to succeed. You've got Reebok to number one. We want the book to come number one. So when, when you're young, I don't know when you... I mean, I, I was only four years old <clears throat> when World War II started. So, uh, and I was 10 when it, when it was over. And during those six years, it was blackout, there was no lights. Uh, and so being outside was a bit of a different experience. Although we did have double summertime in those days, which meant it was still light during the summer at 11 o'clock at night. <laughs> so uh, I, I don't really think you know you're being an entrepreneur until it's over, <laughs> until you've done it or you're halfway through it. Your family have been involved in shoes and in the athletics industry for a long time with um, J.W. Foster and Sons. So did you ever feel, I suppose, maybe not a pressure, but I guess what I'm getting at is, did you ever have maybe any other ambitions as opposed to going into your family business? Or was it always just expected that that's where you would end up as you moved through um, your younger years? Uh, I think when you're young, when you're a child, you don't think of making shoes. You don't think of joining a family business. I'm like many other young children. I'd possibly like to be a train driver, uh, possibly uh, like to fly an airplane and you know, things like that, all nice romantic ideas. I did, I did train at college in engineering, so I could well have gone into engineering and uh, I was keen to, to sort of study electronics, but never did do. And I, I think I, I really came into the business a little bit by default. Well, you're doing nothing else, so come on, you have to do some work at, uh, at J.D. Wu Foster's. But of course, that wasn't until um, I was 17 before I uh, 
before I went into the, uh, into the family business. And within 12 months, I had to go doing national service. We, back down there in the 50s, we're still doing national service. That's two years. My brother, who'd been in the foster family business for longer than me, he started in 1948. Uh, but we both went to do national service at the same time. Okay. Which was uh, interesting. <laughs> what was that experience like, if you don't mind talking about it? Did you enjoy it or were you happy for those two years to be finished? Well, I think when you look back on these things, they, we were in scouts as well. So Jack and myself were scouts. So we were pretty well prepared to look after ourselves. And going into the forces was a different experience. It, you're no longer his mother making your meal, you know, not doing your washing. You know, it, all of a sudden it's something different. The experience, I think, uh, it, again, it's almost one of those things that really sets you up uh, for future life. That we, I, I mean, I enjoy it. The thing is, I used to play badminton quite reasonably well. And uh, so whilst we did two years in, uh, in the forces, I, I spent one year, at least one year, just playing badminton because I played for uh, Fighter Command. And we just went all around to different uh, forces, bases, different things, playing badminton. So uh, what's not to enjoy? And so then when you went back into um, JW Fosters and Sons, obviously for there to be Reebok, there must have had to have been a split somewhere. Um, I know where that was because I read your book, but for anyone that hasn't um, heard the story before, would you mind just taking me back to that time um, and describing a little bit about how the split came along where you and your brother Jeff wanted to move out of the business and start something on your own? Well, it wasn't our intention to move out of business. And we'd done two years of national service and we'd seen the world. Jeff, in fact, had been in Germany. He'd seen Adidas and Puma at uh, first sort of level, as it were. He'd been able to see it as it was happening in Germany. <clears throat> we came back We came back to a failing company. We came back to Jedwin Foster's. They were making the same shoes they'd been making in the 1930s, the 40s and, and 50s. And that was, uh, we were saying, well, you can't continue like this. this. You need to change this business. You need to uh, start doing some marketing, make some plans, expand, do something. Otherwise, the business will fail. Um, but unfortunately, grandfather who started business in, well, 1900 when he started his business, but he made his first pair of shoes, 1895. Uh, <clears throat> he died in 1933. I was born in 1935. Uh, on his birthday, by the way, on the 18th of May, so I, I had the same birthday as he had. Uh, that's why they call me Joe as well. Um, but we, we came back and, and the sons, his sons, my father and uncle, for whatever reason, and I still don't know to this day, they just did not get on. In fact, they were feuding more than they were, they were fighting, more than they were actually thinking about the business. And the business was a really good one. Grandfather had, had really developed his business so good. He was really good at marketing, whether he knew he was marketing the business or not. He had influence. He would give his shoes to, to leading athletes. Uh, in the 1920s, they supplied almost every Olympic uh, athlete that you could name. And of course, as in the book, Chariots of Fire, that's a, it, it was a, a film which immortalized um, Harold Abrahams, um, Eric Ludell and Lloyd Burley. And he, my grandfather supplied them with shoes. So they were wearing foster shoes when they got their medals. However, his sons, I, my uncle and father, didn't seem to inherit his, uh, 
is genius for taking the business forward, for building the business. And so by the time we had done our national service and came back, the business was going down and down and down. They didn't have any salespeople. I did suggest that, that I would go out on the road and do the selling. But uh, I mean, that was met with a very frosty sort of, no, you won't. Uh, and uh, so it took us three years after trying our best to persuade uh, father and uncle that they should do something about this business and change it, make it, uh, make it modern. They wouldn't. So we decided to leave the business and set up, set up our own business, which we did about six miles down the road in the next town. And we set up as Mercury Sports Footwear. And that was the beginning. That was in 1958. I think it's really interesting whenever there is business around family as well, because, you know, I feel like it's almost a golden rule sometimes that people say, don't work with your family or don't work with your friends. Um, obviously, you know, it was already set up for you that way. But did you ever have any fears going into business with your brother, having watched your dad and your uncle fall out so much? Well, I think really when you see, when you see that happening so close, you know very well that you, you can't afford to be that way. You, and, and very fortunately, uh, Jeff and myself, there's only two years between us. I think it was about five years between my uncle and father. Um, but between, we were always the best of friends. And the thing is, we, we, we didn't socialize with each other. We had our own different friends for socializing, but we worked together very well. And Jeff, he, he just wanted to work in the factory. He was happy to run the factory, to do the production, um, to sort of build the new shoes. I, I did a lot of the designing on the shoes, but he would then make it in, into the factory and make it work. Um, so Jeff looked after the factory and I looked after everything else, which in those days might seem a lot, but it wasn't a lot because, because we're a small company. But I did everything else and that was the sales, the uh, um, designing, the marketing. Uh, so we, we did our own areas and, uh, and we never fell out. We never had a crossword at all. So uh, from that point of view, I suppose really two things. One, we were, we were probably closer growing up during the war. Maybe that was something that uh, made us more friendly towards each other. We were closer in age, only two years, which I suppose when you're very young, that's a lot. <laughs> but as you get into your teens, it's, it's not very much at all. So um, and when, uh, when we were in our 20s, I was 23, Jeff 25, when we, when we left the foster business. No, we were always the best of friends. And I, I, don't, I don't think it's an absolute rule not to work uh, with a family. But I, I do take the point that you should never do business with a friend. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's okay to make a friend out of somebody you do business with, but you shouldn't really start doing business with a friend. No, that, that, that can be highly dangerous. Yeah, I feel like it's a bit of risky business to to bring it all too close to home sometimes. But it's so nice to hear that you and your brother maintained that friendship throughout your whole journey because you've had quite the ride with this company. Um, so when you did leave and you made the leap to go out on your own, it must have been quite a scary time as well as it was an exciting time for you. So can you take me back to those early days um, and just where you were with the whole situation? Well, I, I, not, I don't think either of us felt it was a scary time. We both felt it was more scary to stay working at JW Foster's. There was something we could see that would fail. Um, my, my father said to me, uh, look, you know, when, when I'm gone and, and Bill's gone, 
uh, this company will be yours. And uh, the response I could have given to that was, oh, well, we don't want you dead. We don't want you gone. That's not our ambition. But for certain, before you do go, this company will have gone because this company will have no business. Um, so that's what, what drove us apart and drove us to, 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 leave the, uh, to leave the foster business. But were we scared setting up? No, I think we're more excited. I think it was more of a, an adventure. It, you know, it was the beginning of a journey. And um, okay, I, it wasn't easy. It, you know, it was fairly tough, but we were young, 23, 25. What could go wrong? You know, we're, we're un, indestructible. You know, no, we, we can do this. We, we had so much faith, I think, in our abilities and our knowledge that so we, we had the first hand knowledge of fosters and how to make some shoes and or make athletic shoes. We, we had the independence of being in the forces two years away. Um, and then we did go to college to learn more about shoemaking because what we, what we learned at Foster's was specific to, to sports shoes, athletic shoes. We wanted a, a general uh, knowledge of, of footwear. And by going to college, we, we met an awful lot of people uh, who were very useful to us. And we did learn quite a lot more about uh, leather and about manufacturing. So we, we were not scared at all. I think, I think very much more an adventure that, uh, you know, when you've got nothing, where are you going? <laughs> you can only go up, you know, because we, we weren't wealthy. We were buying second-hand machinery for about uh, 15, 20 pounds a time. The machinery, it was just cheap, you know, and so it was quite easy to do. And, and the building we rented for a very low rent. So it was an adventure. Yeah, I think that's an amazing place to start from that, you know, you just had so much ambition, so much belief in what you were doing. Um, and so... I believe from what I remember anyway, you decided to break into the market with cycling shoes first. Is that right in saying that? We did. We started with cycling shoes. I think we were, we were being very good and not wanting to uh, compete too much with the parent family. Uh, parent family were into uh, uh, running shoes, athletic shoes, hand-sewn men, because that's what my uncle, my uncle's side of the business with a hand-sewn. And there were no... Uh, well, they were known worldwide for the uh, quality of those shoes. So we didn't want to go into the athletics business. And Jeff was a keen cyclist. As I've said before, I was a badminton player. Um, we, were not, uh, <laughs> we were not set up to do badminton shoes, so <laughs> we didn't know that. But we could do cycle shoes. And we, we, had, we had a very nice business. It, it re really took off very well, especially when we, well, we had two representatives, two rounds. One, one was a local young young man who was uh, keen on his cycling. He was quite a good cyclist. And uh, he used to take our shoes, put a, a, a rucksack on his back and cycle around 50 mile ridges, calling on all the uh, cycle shops. And surprisingly enough, the cycle shops were different than sports shops. Sports shops didn't sell cycle shoes. Cycle shoes were, were in the cycle shop. So again, we're not cutting across their business. And uh, as you've read the book, we, we had a, another representative in London. And uh, he, well, the, the orders he used to get for us were, were amazing. And uh, to me, it, uh, it proved one point that providing you make a good enough shoe, what you need is a good salesman. And if you've got a good salesman, and he was, he was fantastic. Until again, as you read in the book, um, all of a sudden the orders stopped. 
and it took a month before we found out from his landlady that he'd been killed in a road accident. And that almost stopped our business because we started to grow very nicely. And all of a sudden, that was probably the first time uh, we felt a distinct blow to the business. Uh, but we had slowly and gradually moved into athletics, mainly because the local athletics club, at the Berry and Radcliffe, it was the, the athletics club, they would come round and uh, they knew, and I think Jeff had actually joined the club. So we were making shoes for them. And whilst the cycling business was, uh, it, started, it went down then because we started making athletic shoes and running shoes, and that just took over the business. And so then what do you think, because I think, I mean, everyone knows Reebok, obviously you took it from a startup to the number one um, sportswear brand in the world. So without asking that question, just as broadly as that, um, what do you think is the key to building such a powerful brand? Or what was your strategy entering into the market to set you apart from the likes of Adidas and Nike that were emerging at the time as well? What do you think it was about you guys that made people want to buy into your brand? Well, being at Foster's and realizing that we needed to advertise, we needed to do marketing, um, we, we needed to get out there and sell our shoes that uh, people won't come rushing to your door. You've got to find a way of selling your shoes. But I, I started to, uh, to travel throughout the UK and uh, I would call in on retailers and somewhat retailers of good. I would, I would sell my product. By that time, we'd gone into rugby as well. So when I say rugby, I'm talking rugby league because in the north of England, that was rugby league was a, a, big, uh, a big sport. So we're going to that as well. But I, I would call in, in some of the uh, retailers and say, oh, I'm Reebok. And they'd say, Who, who's Reebok? And I said, well, you know, look, this is it. This is our product. And the answer I would get was, well, yeah, your product looks pretty good, but uh, I've got Adidas. I've got Dunlop. Why do I need Reebok? The realization, why do I need Reebok? I'm selling to the wrong people. I should be selling to my consumer, the athletes. I need to sell to him. The retailer can probably be in the middle and he can stop them. But it, it's, it's the athletes. It's the, it's the user that I need to be selling to. And so whilst we were, we were advertising in magazines like Athletics Weekly and Rugby World, um, I'm not meeting the people. And we had started going to athletics meetings, a lot of cross-country meetings. Um, just to be there and sell the product. But I did realize these are my customers. Th these are the people I need to sell to. And uh, whilst we say, did we have a strategy? I think we sort of bumped, we, we needed to sell. We needed to move forward. That was the only strategy we had. And so it was quite, how do I get to the athletes? Well, I got to the athletes because the three A's, the Amateur Athletic Association, produced a handbook. And in that handbook was every club in the country. The, the name of the secretary and his address were, were in that. So it was, oh, this was it. All of a sudden, I knew how to get to my athletes. And uh, so it was sending letters to everyone, all the clubs, um, and offering a 15% discount. They could either keep it, as the secretary could keep it, or he could give it to the club, whatever. Or he could ask one of his uh, club mates, would, would he like to be the agent? 
and we got a lot of agents. We we had over a hundred agents and more, and that that started our business to to really grow. But um, the athletics business, compared say to football, is quite small. So many people uh, play football, watch football, and really athletics, uh, certainly cross country running, it's not really a spectator sport. So. What we needed to do was to get more volume. Football was a spectator sport. And in those days, Adidas were already starting to make uh, replica sports shirts, the football team shirts. And all the youngsters were wearing the, the team shirts. So it, it had gone to street. Already it was starting to go street. Back in grandfather's day, whatever you made was just pure performance. Wasn't, didn't influence street at all, but now, uh, sport was beginning to influence the street. Um, but for me, I thought, well, the best place I could be is in America. Can I get to America? The reason was we, we'd got 350 to 370 million people there. The spending power was so much more than anywhere else in the world. And they had universities and colleges. And universities and colleges had track teams. They had coach. The coach was a god. He, everybody sort of went there and coach would tell them what we needed to get in, into that market. 1968 was my first trip to America. And that came about because what was then the Board of Trade or the government, the government decided uh, they would like the sports industry to, to export and they would like to encourage us to export. So what they, what they decided is that they, in America, the biggest sports uh, sort of exhibitions in, in the world in those days was the NSGA show, the National Sporting Goods of America. Uh, and that was held in February in Chicago. And believe you me, Chicago in February is very cold. Yeah, very I was cold. thinking. <laughs> Immensely cold, minus 20 degrees was nothing at that time. It was incredible. But however, the border trade would, uh, they would pay for the stand. They would also pay for the return airfare and they would pay half of your hotel bill. So really it wasn't a problem. The other thing I learned in that first trip was that a lot of people like the shoes and said, we're, we're, we're gonna get some of the shoes. And, um, and I'm saying, well, in, in England. And they, they'd be in America and say, what, New England? <laughs> no, England, <laughs> across the water, England. Oh, well, hmm. they, they just didn't, they just didn't want to do that. They had enough product in America to get quite easily. Um, I went with a friend, my friend, I were, we were making a boot for him, a, a climbing boot, a very lightweight rock climbing boot. And of course, again, we're talking about my shoes were for the sports trade, his boots were for the outdoor trade. Um, surprisingly enough, he picked up some orders, which was pretty good because we were making the boots anyway. So, <laughs> uh, But I, I think the outdoor trade they were used to importing goods because they would have skis and uh, ski boots and things from Europe. As I think that, that, that category was driven more by Europe than by America. So uh, they were used to that. So that's probably uh, why we managed to get orders for the boots. But it did make me realize that what I needed was a distributor or someone to get my products um, to a distribution point in America in order to get the Americans. But also, as I had done in the UK, what we needed is to get to the consumer. And how do we get to the consumer? Well, fortunately, 
uh, in the very late 60s and all the way through the 70s became the running boom in America, where people just took up running. It, it helped them to keep fit, but it became, um, became something to do. They had 5K races, 10K races. So these races were going on and attracting enormous fields of, uh, of athletes or runners. They weren't really athletes. They were people who were just enjoying running and, uh, and getting fitter at the same time. And at that same time, Runner's World magazine came onto the market. Runner's World magazine grew fantastically and became a really nice color magazine, became the Bible. Everybody bought the Runner's World magazine if they were running. And I think what happened is at the same time, Nike had started to come onto the market. And I think Runner's World, well, I'm pretty sure that Runner's World helped Nike grow because the business running grew so big that Nike were able to grow with that. And we could see that. We were sitting in England thinking, how do we get to this market? Well, Runner's World started to rate shoes because they got so big, they could tell you which were the best shoes. And every year they brought out their, uh, their edition of uh, ranking the shoes. And uh, it was probably either Nike or New Balance, maybe Brooks or Etonic. There were so many. There's quite a few brands out there on the market. And whoever got the number one slot could never, ever, never, ever supply enough shoes for the demand. It took about two years only, maybe three years, before Runner's World, uh, Bob Anderson, who was the editor of uh, Runner's World, I think he was a producer, he decided we, we, he needed to change. Or I think the retail business just told him he had to change. And so he, he changed it to a five-star race, a star rating. So five-star was the top shoe, and he went down. And he would, um, he would, I'd say, about three or four shoes would then be, have five stars which meant that, okay, you didn't have just one shoe, you could have a choice of three or four shoes. And that struck me that this, is, this was the key. If we could get a five-star shoe, this would make our consumer want the shoe and we would find ourselves a distributor. So that became the, uh, that became the ambition, became the, the focus and our target. And in 1978, I had produced the Aztec which was basically, I, I knew what they wanted for a five-star shoe. I knew what we, we needed to do. So designed the Aztec in, in the hope that we would uh, be able to get one. And uh, we launched the shoe at the 1978 Commonwealth Games in Edmonton, Canada. And we got numerous goals. We got a lot of attention. And so by the time February came around and the Chicago National uh, NSGA show, I could, I could have that shoe on display and it was getting a lot of attention. Okay, it hadn't got five stars at that point, but it was getting a lot of attention. Paul Feynman then, who, who was eventually be the distributor in America, he came along and he, he'd, he'd love to be our distributor. I also had Kmart. And Kmart, they're big wholesale distributors in America. Yeah. And they, they wanted to order 25,000 pairs, wow. uh, which was like, well, how, how can we, we couldn't, that's six months' work for our small factory. I did know that as we went on this progress, if we got to America and we got a shoe that was going to be five-star, we would need help. We would need to move production somewhere. And Barter, I had a good friend at Barter, Barter said that they would do that. So Barter would make shoes, they, they could make the product. And, uh, but Kmart also wanted a better price. And again, I, again, I knew that they would want better prices. And I, and I knew that we had to go to the Far East to get that. 
because that's where the that's where production was going. You couldn't produce it in Europe for anything like the price they could produce in South Korea. So we're already making inquiries and going into that direction. We're in February of 1979 and the shoe, the, the shoe ratings didn't come out till August. So five months later, I, I telephoned Paul Fireman. I didn't want to go with Kmart. That would, I think that might have been a one-off shot and we, we certainly wouldn't have been valued as a brand. Paul Fireman, he had a small distribution uh, company. Uh, it was outdoor distribution, it wasn't a sports shoe distribution, but he knew the American market. And, and I felt I could grow with him piece at a time as against trying to go to Kmart and uh, take on something or buy something that more than we could chew. We were too big at that time. So I phoned Paul Feynman um, at the beginning of August. It was, we, knew that we knew the release date for the uh, shoe magazine. And I asked Paul, Paul, can you go down and get a magazine and see how we do with Aztec? And, uh, he phoned me back an hour later and said, Yo, five stars. Aztec has got five stars. Not only Aztec, though, also your track spike and your racing shoe, with two others, it's called the Gold Range. One was called Inca, the other one Midas. So we had Aztec, Inca, Midas. They all got five stars. So wow. that was the key. And Paul Feynman was the door to open. And that's what got Reebok into America. That must have been quite some moment for you when you got that call telling you you'd essentially achieved your goal that you'd had for the last while. Do you remember that day? Oh, I remember it very well. Yes. I mean, it was like, well, that's it. We, we've made it. Now, now we've got something to jump on, something to go. We're just going into a, a big, big market. Um, and of course we've got Barter ready, although you've read the book and Barter became, it didn't become a disaster. It was another, <clears throat> Stroke of bad luck, which, which turned into good luck. And that's to do with financing. Barter, Barter would, would give financing so that Paul Feynman could get the shoes and sell the shoes without needing to pay, pay up front. Whereas going to the Far East, to, uh, to South Korea, you had to put up a letter of credit. You had to have the money. You had to almost pay them before you got the shoes. But a letter of credit guaranteed they will be paid. So that was different. Um, but yeah, I mean, that day was absolutely fantastic and it meant that we could, uh, we could grow in, into a big market, but it did give its own problems. And I, I had the, the job, or we had the job of moving production down to Bata and also to set up the United States, set up Paul Fireman and get, get him going. Unfortunately, my brother, Jeff, he became sick and uh, it was stomach cancer and he died. So all of a sudden I'd lost that, uh, well, probably my best friend and certainly the person who was running the factory who could have taken the job of going down to Barter and, kind of, and could probably have taken the job of going to South Korea and, and making, making that work whilst I continued working with Paul Fireman and distribution. But I think what it did do is it probably made me be more determined uh, to make a success. It wasn't long before Paul, well, Paul got 20,000 pounds from Barter. Uh, but Barter, unfortunately, they're shoemakers. They're not athletic shoemakers. And so they changed the shape of the shoe to make it easier to make. And they, they, 
rounded off the face ends instead of leaving the aggression that the, the, the design had. And, but the biggest mistake was they, they had the wrong rubber factory. There was a very big concern about it. And the wrong rubber factory, they made the wrong rubber. But in, in this case, it was EVA. EVA was a, a, a plastic type of sponge, very light. Rubber was fairly heavy, but this was very light. And this was the first time they made it in their own factory. And they got it wrong. Not all of it, but they got enough wrong so that probably 10% of the production, the midsoles were failing. Well, <clears throat> I mean, we just knew, we just started on a market and we, we were having a failure. Luckily, it's America. The Americans have this, so what? They'll give you another try. Yeah. And so all Paul had to do was if he got up for her back, he would just send them a, just exchange. And of course, he had to replace. And that was okay until we got South Korea. And we, we needed to get South Korea, we needed to get production there. I take the trip, and so I was able to see uh, some of the factories and see some of the product, which was brilliant. Um, we could get that product at half the price, less than half the price that we could make it for back in the UK. So that then became available for Paul Farmer to use on the uh, on America, the American market. Problem is that the orders were coming in so fast, production was growing so fast. He ran out of money. I didn't have the money either, so we had to find some money. And that, I remember going to some place. I remember going to uh, a place in the Empire State Building, and he was, he was a, a man who sourced out to the Far East as well, and he had turned down Nike. Nike had come along. They wanted sourcing two or three years before, um, and he turned them down, but he didn't want to back us because he didn't want to be seen to have backed the wrong one. <laughs> so... I mean, it was quite amazing to hear that and think about it years later and we were going, going to get bigger than Nike. And, uh, but uh, Paul, through a friend, did know uh, Stephen Rubin. Stephen Rubin had a company, a Liverpool shoe company in Pentland. And Pentland had uh, one of its companies, Asco. They were also a sourcing company and they were out in South Korea. So it was, uh, it was Pentland who managed to uh, well, Canton Range, they got part of the company, of course, and uh, they had the arrangement where they would give Paul not money, they would give him a credit line. When he owed, when he owed Stephen $20 million, Stephen, Stephen Rubin became a little bit worried because this was growing and growing, growing. But the business was growing, and, and that, was, that was fantastic. Uh, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't say no, and since Stephen Rubin now owned part of the company, and he was making a lot of money out of, uh, out of selling the shoes out of South Korea. He was making his money. But uh, what happened then is that we're expanding very nicely. And we had a, a technical rep down in Los Angeles. And that technical rep, Arhel Martinez, his wife, Frankie, and, his, and her girlfriend. So they were going to these aerobic classes. And Arhel saw this as an opportunity. Why, why don't we make a shoe? Make it specifically for aerobics, specifically for women, out of love leather, make it so comfortable, they, they're bound to love it. And he wept to Paul Fireman and said, Paul, is this uh, aerobics going on down in, uh, in Los Angeles and we could do with making a shoe? Arthur wouldn't take no for an answer. So he went round 
to see the production people <clears throat> and said, look, just make me 200 pairs of, uh, of this shoe, which they did. And he gave them to the uh, instructors and some to the, uh, the classes that were going down there and doing the aerobics. And all of a sudden it took off. Wow. All of a sudden, throughout Hollywood, it became Jane Fonda started using it in, in her uh, uh, videos. Um, and then, then we had um, Sybil Shepherd. She, she wore a pair of high tops, orange high tops, uh, to pick up her Emmy Award. So <clears throat> it became Hollywood. Reebok wasn't a big, well-known company in America, but started very nice and started to become known very well for the running, in the running uh, world. But everywhere else, nobody knew us. Um, they knew Adidas, they knew Nike, they knew they were male and they knew they were sweaty. This was a nice, beautiful Reebok, a nice woman's shoe. We became a woman's shoe company. We didn't plan that, but you know, you take your opportunities and all of a sudden the business moved from $9 million to $30 million to $90 million, $300 million. And then, $900 million in successive years of business just, just grew. And so whilst, whilst financing that had been a problem, the next problem was how do you make that many shoes? How do you grow that? And it, it was very fortunate that uh, at that time, Nike had just got into a bad, bad spell and their sales were going down and, and they had to cancel a lot of orders from factories and Reebok we were able to take those. So when you think of this journey, you think of the, the problems, you think of all the possibilities where things went wrong, could have gone wrong, and how we came out of it with luck. We, we had the luck to be uh, a recognized brand when running became so big. And then we had the luck to have Arnold Martinez see something that, uh, that made it, well, that changed, changed the, the company totally. And, and that was just taking your opportunities. But we became so, uh, uh, so big and Hollywood was a big influence and uh, from all the A-listers were wearing our shoes. Um, a guy called Wendell Niles, who was, uh, who was big there in, uh, in Hollywood, Los Angeles, he got us into a, a tennis, a pro-celebrity tennis uh, event in Monte Carlo. And uh, this was in aid of the Princess Grace Fund. And so every year we would do three, four days there. We had Frank Sinatra there. We, we had Sean Connery. We had Roger Moore and many more. But it was, it was a great time. And it, and it had taken the company. It took the company up, uh, well, the end of uh, 1989, I retired. The company was then about 3.8 billion in size. And, uh, you know, that was tremendous. I got to the point where I'd, I'd put on so many people around the world that, uh, so we had distribution globally. Um, a few markets hadn't, hadn't got to, we hadn't got to India or Pakistan or uh, that sort of market in the Middle East, but um, all the rest of the world, we had tremendous, tremendous market. And all I was doing then was really uh, going on, on an airplane, flying to whatever country, being picked up by a limousine and taken to the best hotel and meeting people and just sitting down talking, whatever. I'd moved away from the business. The business had become accountants, lawyers. It, 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 it had become much more numbers, dealing with numbers. For me, it, it felt like the journey was over. 
we'd succeeded, we, we'd, we'd become number one. <clears throat> we'd overtaken Adidas, overtaken Nike. And so for me, it was time to just bow out. So at the end of 1989, I retired. But it's a bit like um, you could check out, but you could never leave. Because although I did check out, I would be going back either by request or invitation, whatever it was, for certain things uh, forever. It, it was a good journey. It was a very uh, enjoyable journey. And uh, it was time to get off. It's so evident how much success you've had. All you have to do is say the name Reebok and everyone knows what you're talking about. So I'd be really curious to hear from you what your personal definition of the word success is. Having fun, enjoying life. To me, that's success. Um, it was also nothing personal. I, my ambition was Reebok. We had an air. And it's like, it like having a woman. You know, you, you cherish that woman, you cherish the brand. And we did. And the brand probably got too big for me, so it gets too big for me. It moves on to something else. But to get the brand to become number one, what a life's ambition that is. You know, for me, that was wonderful. And we had a number of those wonderful times when, yes, we got into the American market with the Aztec. Yes, all of a sudden, freestyle became the aerobic shoe that would sweep the world. And then you become the number one brand. Uh, I couldn't have asked for more to achieve. And so success is achieving things, but I think mainly it is having fun, enjoying it. It's, if it's not fun, I don't think you can succeed. I, I, I think you would you'd destroy yourself. So I think having fun, enjoying it, is, is my definition of success. Yeah, I like that because I think for anything to work, you have to be passionate about it and you're never going to be passionate about something that you don't like. So um, yeah, that's an interesting take from you. And I guess my final question is, if I put your 10-year-old self in front of you now, what's the biggest piece of advice, having been through everything you've been through, both career-wise and then just in life in general, that you would give that 10-year-old self moving forward? I'm always going to give you the same answer. It would be, whatever you do, have fun. Go wherever you feel, do whatever you do. Don't hurt people, but have a lot of fun and enjoy it. And that's all I could say because I couldn't give anybody any advice on what to do. I've had a lot of advice, some good, a lot of it from experts, which not good. <laughs> you think why? Yeah. And so it's, it's follow your own instinct. Yeah. Enjoy yourself, follow your own instincts. Think about things, but don't overthink about it. If you overthink anything, you would never do it. Well, I've enjoyed listening to your journey so much. Um, it's so inspiring and it's so incredible to hear everything that you've been through. Um, so I just want to say thank you so much again for coming on and giving up your time. I really appreciate it. It's been great chatting with you. It's a, it's a pleasure, Lucy, because I've got one ambition left, and that's for the book to become my number one bestseller. I think you're well on your way. It's an incredible book. <laughs> thank, you. thank you very much. Thank you. I hope people enjoy it. 
Thank you so much for listening. And as always, please rate, share and leave a comment if you like what you hear. And don't forget to follow at what it's like pod on Instagram and Facebook. To find out more about Joe's life and to read his book, Shoemaker, visit the links provided in the show notes. I'll be back on Thursday with more inspiring stories. But for now, this has been What It's Like with Luce.